and I'm going to invite you, um, you we're going to be looking at several different passages in Ezekiel, um, and Nicole already prayed over the message, so I'm just going to get right into it, because Ezekiel is 48 chapters long, so buckle up, boys and girls. Um, but uh, we, we got to, in the bulletin, rather than doing the song lyrics like we've been do- doing since the, since the pandemic, um, I included a bunch of background information so that if you're interested in it, you can read it, um, and if you're not, you don't have to hear me reciting it. Um, but um, basically, the book of Ezekiel, very, very simply, the book of Ezekiel is contemporary at its beginning um, with the very beginning of Daniel. He's contemporary with Daniel um, and Jeremiah. So he, he is the same time as Daniel and Jeremiah. But unlike uh, Jeremiah, who writes, he is in Jerusalem um, around the year 600 B.C. when it is conquered by the Babylonians... And unlike Daniel, who is a very young man and taken to, to Babylon and serves in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court um, and lives well into the Persian period, he's, Daniel, um, the book of Daniel covers like 80 years. So um, uh, Ezekiel is one of the early exiles. So uh, what basically happened was there was a king named Josiah. Uh, He was a decent king, Uh, he was a good king, but at the end of his reign, he allied himself with the Egyptians against the Babylonians, and he was killed in battle. And he had four sons who ruled after him, and they were all absolutely terrible. They were the Millard Fillmores of Judah. I mean, they just, they were completely forgettable. Um, They're so forgettable that they all have at least two names in the Bible. Nobody even really knows what these guys' names were. Um, and some of them have funny names, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim. Um, you know, and again, there's Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin, Josiah, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin, and then, you know, it, like Zedekiah. Like, it's just these random names. Um, so, anyway, they, they rule for about 24 years, and then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar's armies lay siege to Jerusalem. They destroy the city, they destroy the temple, and they take the rest of Um, the Israelite nobility captive to Babylon. Now, it's important they understand when we talk about the exile in Babylon, when you talk about in the Bible, you talk about Judah is conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile, that was the aristocracy that was taken into exile. The, the, The king, the royal family, the administration, the priests, the people were left behind. Most of the people were just left behind to scatter. Um, And that's what they did. They scattered. They went wherever they were safest, whoever was going to protect them. Some of them went to Egypt. There's a whole thing in Jeremiah. Um, They tell Jeremiah, we're going to Egypt and you're coming with us. And Jeremiah says, no. Then they kill the Babylonian governor, blame him and say, now you're going to Egypt with us. There's there's all this stuff that's going on um, in this period. It's, It's chaos. It's anarchy. Ezekiel watches that chaos from a distance. Um, and, and he provides a, a book that is quite possibly the craziest book in the Bible, particularly the first chapter. Now, honestly, how many of you have tried to read Ezekiel, got to chapter 1, and went, I have no idea what's going on? All right? All right. Everybody, there's wheels and flaming feet and cherubims and seraphims and all these angels and stuff going on and storms and fires. And everybody's like, and chapter 40 starts with a temple. Whoa, this temple's like 17 miles across. What is going... It is a crazy, crazy book. 
Um, and so rather than going through, because I think a lot of times people hit the book of Ezekiel and they, they either say, this is not worth reading, um, or they get all kinds of wacky stuff. In fact, I want to read you a quote. Um, this, is, this is, I think, succinctly describes the encounters we have with the book of Ezekiel. This is from James Smith. He says, a casual perusal of this material has convinced many readers that Ezekiel has little spiritual value and even less contemporary relevance. Now, that is academic for we don't know what this book is about. Um, While Ezekiel has been neglected by the church at large, it has come to be the happy hunting ground of cultists, critics, and curiosity mongers. That is the best description of the response to Ezekiel. It is fascinating to read a a commentary of the prophets and you get page and page and hundreds of pages on Isaiah and Jeremiah gets hundreds and hundreds of pages and then Ezekiel gets 20 pages of... And, and then they just move on to Daniel. You know, I mean, it's just, this is how it works. So how do we read a book like Ezekiel? How do we read it? And so I want to take you through the, the, again, I get the breakdown, the chronology, the background, the outline, all the inside. You can go through and you can, you can read the, the book in that sense. But I think what's important about reading Ezekiel is that we find anchor points. Um, one of the things that, that I have always striven to do, whether it's an academic pursuit or a theological pursuit or a personal pursuit, is to find what I call the governing principles. What are the governing principles of whatever it is that I'm studying? What, or, what is it organized around? Um, because if you can figure out what the center is, then everything else starts to make sense. And so Ezekiel has four anchor points. Four places that if we, if we grab onto these spots in Ezekiel and they are buried inside of building models of Jerusalem and, and uh, crazy visions of, of uh, I think my favorite, I don't know, if you get a chance to read the outline, um, I took some of this stuff out, uh, some of it might still be in there, but I think at the end of the outline there's, this, there's a section, I think it's 38 and 39, the coming of Gog. And at one point in my notes it said, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know if I, I left that in or not. Um, but, but there's stuff in there that, like, I don't know. I, I, I mean, honestly, whenever I get asked about Ezekiel, my answer is, mm-hmm. um, But I think that if you, we can take these anchor points, we can latch on to them, and we can say, okay, if we organize our understanding of this book around these core concepts, then what is important about the visions and the images and all that stuff will come to the forefront, and what isn't important will get downplayed, and we're able to interpret it um, better. Not perfectly. I don't know anybody that's got a perfect understanding of a book like Ezekiel, um, but better. So let's take a look at four anchor points in the book of Ezekiel. Let's, let's start the first one. And, and I did something I never do. Um, treasure this, folks. Treasure this fill-in-the-blanks outline. Um, and the most impressive thing will be if I actually remember to give you all the words that fill the blanks. Um, but uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, we're going to start in Ezekiel 11, we're going to get anchor point number one. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the anchor point, then I'm going to give you a quick summary for it, and hopefully that will fuel your study of this book. Ezekiel chapter 11, um, as Ezekiel is going through all this stuff, and in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord, he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple in Jerusalem. So God just gets up and leaves, and then in, in chapter 11... 
and verse 13, we read this. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatea, the son of Bania, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? In other words, will you, will you finally wipe us out? And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, to us this land is given for possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them from afar, far off among the nations, Though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will, be, they will remove from it all its detestable things, all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them that I will put it within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart, or, uh, give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my laws, obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and the abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Now, most people miss, if you read in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1 to, 11, to the end of 11 is actually one big long vision because in verse 22, then the cherubim lifted up their wings. That's all the way to chapter 1. Um, uh, the wheels beside them, the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord has shown me. So um, remember that image, by the way. The, 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 the glory of God comes up, gets up out, and it goes to the mountain. That's important. We're going to come back to that. But when we get to the verse, so what is anchor point number one? Of Ezekiel, and this is significant. You need to remember this because of Ezekiel's question: Will you bring a full end to the remnant of Israel? And God's answer is no. I will gather them again. So the answer is the the anchor point we need to remember: No matter all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the curses that are in the book of Ezekiel, remember this: God, for God, there is always a remnant. He will always save. And this is important. We need to understand that no matter how bad the world around us gets, no matter how often we, are, we feel like Elijah on a mountain saying to God, I'm the only one, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. There is always a remnant. God is always at work. He has never abandoned mankind. Now, mankind abandons him. And sometimes it feels like there is nothing good in the world, but there is always a remnant. God is always at work. And the remnant is not a remnant because of how good they are, but rather of how aware they are of their need for God. When we read this, we see that these are the people that come, and we're going to talk about that in a second, because these, 
These four anchor points run in parallel. But there is always a remnant. So if you read Ezekiel and you see all the judgment and all the condemnation and all the bad things that are going on, it's so easy to go, oh man, this is a book about God getting even with sinners. But remember, this is really a book about God keeping a people for himself. And that ties into the second anchor point, which is in chapter 16. In chapter 16 and verse 59, we read this. So again, if we go through and we read through verse chapter 15 and 16, God calls Israel a useless, empty vine. He calls them a faithless bride. He accuses them of adultery and fornication and all kinds of stuff. And you go, wow, this is awful. This is terrible. This is mean. Um, then in verse 59, thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Now remember, this is in the context of an illustration of a faithless wife. So um, he's talking about a faithless bride. So he's, he's talking about a covenant. He's using marriage as an example. I think Jesus did that too. It's a pretty good idea. Um, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet... I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Now, when we read this line, and I will establish a covenant with you, understand that when we're talking about establishing a covenant, it's very much the same thing we talk about when we do Lord's table. And we talk about remembering the Lord and do this in remembrance of me. It is not, a, for the Lord's table, it is not a past event that we sit and remember, but rather it is an active thing that we are called to in this moment. In the same sense, the covenant that God has established is being renewed in the sense that he is reminding the people of Israel that it exists and has gone nowhere, that they might have violated the covenant, but God remembers the covenant he made with them in their youth. He honors the covenant. Some of you were here, have been here long enough to remember when we went through the the Song of Solomon. We talked about how the Song of Solomon is really... In the Song of Solomon, the person that, that figures the Lord in the Song of Solomon is the woman. That, that the man, Solomon, has wandered off. He's, he's married extra wives. He's forgotten about the wife of his youth. But her love for him is so complete and so devout that eventually he returns to her and he renews his vow with her and he rediscovers the love of his youth. In the same way, here, God talks about Israel, talks about Judah as having wandered away, but he remains faithful to his covenant. And this is important that we understand that the covenant of God is eternal. That's the fill in the blank. The covenant of God is eternal. I've often been accused of of forgetting to tell you to fill in the blank. So um, this this is not a covenant that is based on our beauty and our desirability. It's not even based on our own purity. 
It's based on the character of the one who made the covenant. And Christ, is God is the one who makes the covenant with Israel and with the church. And so that when, the, when God says the covenant is eternal, he means it's eternal. When we some, say something will last forever, especially if we're the manufacturers of a technology of some kind like smartphones, what we mean by forever is like a year and a half. I think my favorite is, I one time had a toaster with a lifetime warranty that actually said in the warranty, the lifetime of the toaster is the period during which the toaster works properly. (laughs) So when the toaster broke down, it was out of warranty. What a useful warranty that was. You say, you read the warranties on your toasters? Yes, I do. I have a folder at my house. This should surprise no one. I have a folder at my house with all of the manuals and warranties of every piece of technology we have in our house, from the washing machine to the snowblower to the generator uh, to the cell phones that we have. I have copies of them all in a folder. Unfortunately, that folder is in the junk drawer, (laughs) so I don't know where it is. But I do have a folder. You knew that was coming back, right? All right, so... Um, The covenant of God is eternal. This is is substantial for us, that we understand that, again, no matter how bad things get, no matter how strong the condemnation is, the covenant of God, for those who come and come back to him, it remains in effect. Now, those of us who choose to reject the covenant and stay outside the bounds of the covenant, we don't receive the blessing of the covenant. But those who who repent, and and repentance is one of those words that always gets bounced around, that if you define it theologically, people get all annoyed. Because people think that repentance is, I say that something I did was wrong. I tell God that something I did was wrong, and now everything's better. Repentance is admitting I have stepped outside of the covenant of God and asking him to bring me back into that relationship. It is not that I bring myself back into the relationship. It is that I ask him to bring me back into the relationship. Now, now he is the God of hesed, the God of loving kindness, the God of steadfast love, the God who has never turned away a repentant soul. He's never said, nah, your repentance wasn't good enough. Try again Tuesday. His grace extends beyond my inability to request his grace. So his covenant is eternal. There is always a remnant and there is always a covenant. So even with the glory of God, in chapter 10, the glory of God lifts up out of Jerusalem and everybody says God has left. He's no longer with us. We're abandoned. He continues to be at work building his people. So let's take a look at the third anchor point, which is in chapter 20. Twenty verses, Verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter if you will not listen to me. But my holy name... You shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, remember where the glory of God went? To the mountain. 
For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there are all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require my contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from, from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations." That word nations is Gentiles, goyim. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds which you have defiled yourself. And you shall loathe yourself for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, what does that tell us? What's a third anchor point that we can grab out of Ezekiel? It is this. Adversity, whether it comes from God as a trial or it comes from the world as sin and temptation, adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. The faithful go to find God where he is, and he meets them. That's what's going on here. The glory of God has been moved to the mountain, and for most of Israel, they went, whew, that's a relief. Now we can put idols into the, the temple mound and not have to worry about God being there. But the faithful, the true house of Israel, they go to the mountain where the glory of God is. Uh, this, by the way, there's a whole lot. I can't get into all of this. Ezekiel informs a lot of the Apostle Paul's theology about the, 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 the people of God. You know how Paul sometimes talks about how it's not those who are circumcised of the flesh, but those that are circumcised of the heart. He, the, the circumcision of the heart rather than the circumcision of the flesh. He talks about, he calls the Jews the, the concision, the ones who, who slash and cut rather than the true circumcision. A lot of that comes out of Ezekiel, and it comes filtered through Jesus. Jesus uses Ezekiel a lot too. Um, and most people don't know that because we can't get past chapter 1. Um, but but uh, there's, there's a lot of that. Ezekiel, is, it, it, it pervades a lot of what Jesus says. Um, in fact, this has nothing to do with the message, but I, I was reading a, a very liberal theologian. I can't remember which one. It's been too long, and there are so many of them. Um, but, um, but I was reading this, this theologian, and he was talking about how Jesus was this, Jesus was this eschatological prophet, that he was, he, was, he was coming among the people, and he was preaching about the end times. And he starts talking about all these phrases that Jesus coined. And I'm going, Ezekiel, Daniel, I, I, he didn't coin any of those. He just read his Bible. Um, which apparently this theologian had not done. Um, but adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. Where is the mountain of God? Now, the, this image gets borrowed from in Hebrews. It's all over Hebrews, this idea of looking for... Uh, it talks about Abraham who looked for the city whose, whose builder and maker was God. Um, he, he's always going over the mountains looking for God. He thinks he's going to find the city of God. And Ezekiel talks about now we have come to Mount Zion, the city of our God, um, with the first assembly, the, the, the assembly of the firstborn, and, and all this stuff. And there's, there's all these descriptions because the faithful... If God moves, they move with him. The people that are content to worship and worship in an empty temple will inevitably 
corrupt it for their own purposes. But those who seek after God. Adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. See, complacency, ease, well, anybody can take the name of God. They can say, this is significant. This is, man, I'm a Christian. You know, people get so upset to me when I talk about, when I use the word Christian or, and I, I say they're Christian lowercase. And uh, it's like, and they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, they've got, they, they look like a Christian. They sound like a Christian. But I'm curious just how deep the Christian goes. And, and you know, th- this is a reality. I'm not trying to sound judgmental. But, but just because somebody says the right words, and goes to church, it doesn't mean that they have a relationship with Christ. I like to believe that if the glory of God moved out of Bedford Road, we would notice. And we would go to wherever he was. The reality is, for most religious people, they wouldn't know whether church showed, God showed up to their church service or not. Adversity brings the faithful to the mountain because it separates the faithful from the complacent. It separates the true from the seemingly true. Because when adversity hits, the people that don't have depth of conviction born of the presence of God in their lives, they're more than willing to bend the Bible to placate the people. I've talked several times about we should not be surprised that our culture no longer, um, if it ever did, operates according to Christian standards because every time Christianity is confronted and told that they're hateful or spiteful because they believe something that the mob doesn't believe, Christians, the, the Christian world in general, lower C, has a tendency to just back up and say, no, no, we didn't mean that. Let us redefine what we mean. So that by the time we run into something that we can't align, that we can't cross, we've been backpedaling for so long that our backs are up against the line, but we've got nothing to stand on because we are so far removed from the standards we should be in that we can't get there. Adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. You know, it's a funny thing about getting on the mountain. It makes you a target because you're on the mountain. People can see you. Reminds me of uh, Gideon in the book of Judges. God calls him to serve um, as judge, and it's my favorite thing in the world. So Gideon is threshing wheat in a valley, which if you know anything about how they threshed wheat, was a stupid, stupid thing to do. He's so afraid. Gideon was so afraid of the enemy that he was like basically cowering in a, in a little silo, throwing his wheat up in the air, hoping that the wind would blow through and clear the chaff. He's a coward. Gideon's a coward um, because he's afraid to be identified with the God he actually claims to serve. And eventually God takes that coward and turns him into a warrior, but it takes some work. I think my favorite part about Gideon is just how many times he questions whether God is really telling him what God is telling him. He's like, okay, I think I understand, but... Could you possibly, if you read the story of Gideon, the book of Judges, if you haven't read this, this is amazing. He he does stuff like, okay, so here's what I want you to do, God. Do you think that if I put a piece of wool on the ground, you could make the ground wet, but the wool dry? The angel of the Lord goes, okay, I'll do that for you. So the next day he comes out, the wool's dry and the ground's wet. He goes, okay, okay, that was cool, but 
Could you make the wool wet and the ground dry? <laughs> like, like you just, you just, you just picture. That's how I picture Gideon. <laughs> like he's trying to outsmart God. Adversity brings the faith. Now it's funny because with Gideon, he actually did have a deep faith that he had not discovered yet. And when God puts him in an adverse situation, Gideon grows to become the leader he's supposed to be. See, adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. Even those who seem to have an appearance of a casual faith, when put up against adversity, sometimes they surprise you. That God moves them and something happens and they do what you would never expect. And it's one of my favorite things to see in a church. Is when somebody I was sitting there going, I don't know about this guy, I don't know what's going on. And then they face adversity and they say, but I'm relying on the Lord and here's some scripture. I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? Adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. In chapter 34, verse 11 to 31, 36, 22 to 37, I'm just going to read a little bit of 36. I'm not going to read the whole thing just for the sake of time. I'm going to start, I think I'll start in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your inequities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places shall be rebuilt, the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. They will say, this land was desolate. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined place and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will I let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock of sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The fourth anchor. So... Anchor one, there's always a remnant. Anchor two, the covenant of God is eternal. Anchor three, adversity brings the faithful to the mountain. Anchor four, God gathers the scattered. It is a little disturbing to realize that the faithful are not always able to assemble. That the the will of the world, the will of the powers of this world, they believe that divide and conquer The church can be scattered, but God will always gather. Now, that gathering may be in the kingdom when the church triumphant gathers together with Christ as king over all, declared and openly stated like he is in the book of Revelation. But regardless, God gathers the scattered. And if you read Ezekiel with these four anchor points in place, the visions and things will make sense. If you read it and you go, okay, so where's the remnant in this vision? Where's the covenant in this vision? How does it make sense? Okay, so here's all this adversity. So where are the faithful? All right, so here's all this scattering. Where are the gathering? When does the gathering come? And that's because the big idea today is that God, God's purpose, even in adversity, is our restoration. God's purpose, even in our adversity, 
even in the most difficult times, is the restoration of the faithful. It is the restoration of the broken. It is the restoration of those who, who, who are uh, not believers, who are going through life going, I'm trying to make sense of this, everything is broken. God desires for their lives to be restored. Not restored to what we want our lives to be, but restored to what we were made to be. God's purpose, even in adversity, is our restoration. Think about it this way. And I want to leave you with a seed, an idea on how to read the Bible. There are really three big things that happen in the Bible that parallel one another. That's bigger than Ezekiel, but Ezekiel plays a key part. The first is the Exodus, in in the book of Exodus, appropriately named. When the people of Israel are enslaved... By God's appointment, by the way. Now, this sounds really weird, but it's God that told Israel to go to Egypt. There's a lot of reasons for that in Genesis, but God tells Israel to go to Egypt. God's people were enslaved so that they would know what it meant to be free. And here in Ezekiel, God's people are scattered so they know what it means to be gathered. And in the gospel, in the incarnation of Christ, God's people must die so that they may know what it means to live. And Christ's death, burial, and resurrection teach us that we are dead in our sins. The Apostle Paul says that over and over and over again. But we are made alive in Christ. We are given the spirit of quickening. I think it's Peter that says that. We are made alive in Him. We are renewed in Him. So adversity, difficulty, challenges, all the things that we go through on a regular basis in our lives, and we sit there and say, God, why am I going through this? There are lots of causes, and we could talk about the difference between a trial from God and a temptation from the world, and there's all these things that we could explore. But what's important is you understand adversity is God working toward our restoration. Israel had to go through the exile so they knew what it meant to be gathered, so that when the shepherd appeared, and Jesus is called the good shepherd, they would know what it was like. They knew what it meant to be a lost sheep. In the Exodus, we're enslaved so we can know to be free. In the exile, in Ezekiel, we are scattered so we know what it means to be gathered. And in Christ, we are dead so we may know what it means to be alive. If you read Ezekiel with the anchor points and God's purpose, suddenly the things that really stand out and you go, this must be important because it's wicked weird, are less important like, for example, chapter 1, I'm just going to leave you with this. Chapter 1, the whole vision, the wheels, that the, uh, everybody wants to interpret it. They want to get all allegorical on it. The brazen feet represent this, and the seraphim represent this. I Personally, and I could be wrong, Ezekiel set me straight. I think Ezekiel just needed something to really get his attention. I really honestly believe that there's no symbolism behind that. I don't believe that God actually looks like he appears in chapter 1. and don't like spinny eyes or anything like that. I just believe Ezekiel needed something to get his attention because Ezekiel 
had a faith that was about to be tested and proved. By the way, at one point, Ezekiel is called to preach in the city square as his wife lays dying. God even tells him, just so you know, while you're there, your wife's going to get sick and she's going to die. Now go preach. Ezekiel had to, God had to get Ezekiel's attention. Why? Well, I think if we look at the anchor points, we understand that the adversity. Ezekiel had to be refined as a prophet, even as he was telling Israel that they were going to be refined as a people so they could appreciate the covenant that they were a part of. His, 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 everything about him, you know, was scattered and then gathered again in his purpose as a prophet. So I would ask you to take home just this simple idea, the big idea there, adversity, that God's purpose even in adversity is our restoration. What is God doing in the difficulty you are facing in your life? And each of us may have a different answer to that question, but the answers should all be leading us toward a deeper relationship with him, a deeper understanding of his covenant with us, a deeper understanding of the salvation we have in him, a deeper, more intense relationship with his purposes in our world. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, you are weird. I would love to say that everything that you do makes sense, but this book is crazy. And it's not the only one. And sometimes when I read what you have to say, It doesn't make any sense. And so, Lord, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit and your community and the heritage of faith that we are able to be a part of who have all looked at your word and been challenged and drawn and changed by what you have said in all its multitude of complexity and difficulty. Thank you, God, that you do not always speak in a a way that we can quantify and control, but sometimes you just blow our minds. And then through all of that, call us to yourself. God, help us to be your people in this place, in these moments, as we journey together. Let us show others who you are Let us encounter your son, Jesus, and be transformed and renewed and walk together as your people, as your sheep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever go in peace my